We continue in the fourth chapter of First Timothy, so turn there if you would in your Bible or the pew Bibles in front of you. First Timothy chapter four, and we continue to work our way through this chapter. We entered last week into the second section of this chapter, which began in verse six. And so let's begin reading there. First Timothy chapter four, beginning in verse six. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister or an excellent minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. Verse 7, but reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise or train yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach, verse 10, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe, verse 11, these things command and teach. Our Father, we pray for your blessing upon the instruction, the proclamation of your word. We pray for your spirit to lead us into the way of truth. Give us understanding. Give us ears to hear. And I pray, Father, you would rest upon me as I speak. May I be your mouthpiece. We pray this for the glory of Christ's name and his gospel. Amen. You may be seated. We pick up this morning where we left off last week. We turn again to Paul's apostolic directives to Timothy, the young pastor Timothy. And if you remember, Timothy is not only a young pastor, but also a kind of apostolic representative or, or delegate that's been left uh, and, and sent to Ephesus uh, to set things in order where there has been disruption by the false teachers that we have already seen that was spoken of in Acts chapter 20. And now in the opening of this book, we find that they are there and they have been causing disruption within the congregation. And remember that these directives from the apostle to Timothy also provide an example, an example or, or directives for all ministers of the gospel. And so there's a, a real sense in where as we go through this section, I'm preaching to myself, I'm preaching to our leadership, our elders, and possibly some of you that may be future elders in churches. But at the heart of this section, after addressing the issue of the later day apostasy in verses 1 through 5, in verse 6, he began to focus on and reminding Timothy of what it means 
to be a good or excellent minister or servant of Jesus Christ. And it's there in verse 6 that we find that central theme. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ. And it's these directives of Paul that later he would be reminded of, that is, Timothy would be reminded of these directives from Paul, and that Timothy himself would pass these on to others. And the church is to do that through each generation. We've already spoken in this letter about how there's a global understanding of the life of the church and a generational aspect. And that generational aspect we find, for instance, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. And the things, he's, here he is, Paul writing to Timothy. And the things that you have heard from me. The things in 2 Timothy, the things in 1 Timothy, the things that Timothy would have heard in person from Paul that may that we may not have in Holy Scripture. But these things that he had heard from him among many witnesses, Paul says, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so... We find a verse here that becomes a springboard for many Bible colleges and seminaries where they are to uh, teach men and instruct men in the way of truth. But ultimately, even though it may be applied to those situations, it really goes back to the local church, back to the local church to prepare men, to train men, to raise up men by the grace of God in the things that they that we have learned, that we have heard from Scripture and we we would commit these things to the next generation of men that they would be able to teach and to carry on the work. But recall from last week, as we, as we began this section and as we moved from verse 6 and began to work our way to verse 11, the central theme again is that which is in verse 6. You will be a good or excellent minister of Christ Jesus. And what we've seen so far, let me remind you, we saw number one last week in verse six, that a good minister is a is to faithfully teach the word of God. A good minister is to faithfully teach the word of God. And we'll see this more. This primarily focuses on the exposition of the scriptures and from that expounding upon what we would call apostolic doctrine. If you instruct the brethren, verse 6, in these things, he says, and he calls it, notice verse 6, the words of faith, that is scripture, and the good doctrine, that is this sound good doctrine that he has received from the scriptures and from the apostles, which Timothy himself had carefully followed. So Paul begins this section by uh, laying and setting this forth to Timothy and to all church leadership. And if Timothy was to be a good minister of Jesus Christ, he was to be teaching this apostolic doctrine. And this is, and we talked about the positive and the negative aspect of this. This is the positive aspect of the teaching ministry of an excellent or good minister of Jesus Christ. A faithful minister of Jesus Christ and the ministry of the church through the teaching eldership is to labor and 
and be faithful in the instruction of sound doctrine, apostolic doctrine, in other words, biblical truth. So a good minister is to faithfully teach the word of God. Verse six. Then secondly, we saw verse seven. Number two, a good minister is to warn the church of error. A good minister is to warn the church of error. Verse seven, but reject, reject profane and old wives fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. And this is the negative side. The negative side of the work of a good minister and the eldership is teaching that warns and refutes the false teachers and their doctrinal error. I recall the warning in chapter 4 at the beginning, then verses 1 through 5. And we can see how this now moves to this imperative in verse 7 to reject. That is, reject the false teaching that Paul will call old wives' fables there in verse 7. In other words, things that are not true. Remember, underlying that word was the word myths. You can think of things like um, the myths from Joseph Smith, right? Myths of false doctrine and heresy. But then thirdly, in the second part of verse 7, on into verse 9, we learn number 3, we saw that a good minister is not only to teach sound doctrine, teach the word of God, he's to warn the church of error, but the minister himself, concerning himself, he's to discipline himself toward godliness. Notice the second part of verse 7. And exercise yourself toward godliness, for bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. You see, Timothy was not only to teach others the faithful word, but he himself was to be nourished. His, he was to nourish his own soul with these truths. He's to exercise, train, discipline himself toward godliness. And if you remember, Paul is using an athletic metaphor here. Uh, he's, to, he's to exercise, and, and it's as if in the background are the ancient uh, Olympian games and of the athletes, how they would discipline themselves, even as we may even see in our times. But the eldership... And a faithful pastor is to be strengthened by laboring in the word, growing in the knowledge of the truth. And he's strengthened by the word. And he will not only be able to refute error, but he will grow in teaching the truth to others. But he personally is to be growing in doctrine and life, the implications of that doctrine to his life and obeying that teaching. The truth of God's word, listen church, the truth of God's word for all people, not just the elders, not just the minister of Christ, but the implication of this is that the truth of God's word leads to godly living, godliness. And as the minister and as all of us, as we discipline ourselves in the study of God's word, its teaching and the implications are brought to bear in our lives. More on that here in a, in a bit. But this godliness of verse 8 has effects, if you remember, for not only this age, but that which is to come. And that's how the Bible describes uh, history. There's this age and what? And the age to come. Uh, notice verse 8. 
that this godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and that which is to come. His point is he's contrasting as he did like an athlete. Uh, there, there are benefits to exercise. There is muscle growth. There's all kinds of things that may take place, but it's only temporal. It's only for this life. It is passing away. But godly exercise, the, the, the things that take place from obedience in the scripture by the power of the spirit, true godliness is profitable for the age to come. It has eternal consequences. In other words, godliness has infinitely greater value than the temporal things of this world. And as we said last week, there are a thousand things. There are a thousand things, a thousand activities that can distract a minister and God's people from the biblical priorities that we see here in this passage, especially what we find in verses 8 and 9. And that priority is the pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of godliness. That which is eternal must have the priority. Listen, that which is eternal must have the priority. Consider the functions and the life and the activities of the church and of your life personally. That which is eternal must have the priority. And the truth of verse 8 is so self-evident, according to the apostle. is so self-evident that he writes in verse 9, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. All right. So now we're to number four this morning. Number four. This is going to take a while. A good minister, an excellent minister is to be faithful to the biblical mission. He's to be faithful to the biblical mission. And you may be wondering, oh, what's that? Let me begin with this. Our elders do not sit in a room and strategize of what the mission of the church is to be and, to do and what we are to do. We do not do that. When we are discussing such things, we're going here. This is not something where you gather together church leadership and maybe some church members and you get the marker board out. Let's, let's plan with our vision and what we're supposed to be doing. I know that's popular, but that's not what the scriptures teach. The biblical vision, the biblical mission is found in the word of God. Someone recently sent me an article and it was about how to reach. What's the current? Is it was it Gen Z? 
Is that the Gen, Gen Z? How to reach Gen Z with the gospel. And they had all these ways to do this. And I'm reading this one. Are you kidding me? You know how you reach Gen Z? The same way that Timothy and the apostles reached pagan Romans 2,000 years ago. The message doesn't change. Listen. And the methods do not change. It's coming in contact with the word of truth, the gospel. Him we preach, Paul said, right? Him we preach. Now look what Paul says. How a good minister is to be faithful to the biblical mission. Verse 10. For to this end, for to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach. What? What? A good and faithful minister of the gospel is a man who labors toward and is faithful to the biblical mission. Now, the central thought of verse 10 is the global, or as we might say, especially connected to Paul, is the Gentile mission. It is the Gentile mission. I can prove that here in just a minute. And just consider this. Uh, our eldership, all of our men that are teaching, there is a there is a sense in where we come to teachings, we come to the scriptures, and there are times when we are looking at the micro, the verse, the particular teaching right there in a section in that verse, and then our teaching should always have coupled with that the, the micro, and then we pan out to the macro, the big picture. Moving in and out of the big picture. That is, when we come to something such as this, the, the global vision, the biblical mission of the church, and in this case, the Gentile mission, have in your mind, again, we have the fall and the beginning, and then in chapter 3 of Genesis, there we have the fall and the curse comes upon the couple and God in his love and grace and mercy, his everlasting kindness, he gives a promise of redemption, doesn't he? Through the seed of the woman, through the woman, the seed would come that would crush the head of the serpent who would overcome death and the curse. And we find moving through the Bible, the promised seed of a woman, of Abraham, of David. Imagine in your mind, just visualize it like, like in a, a military target. Ground zero. Ground zero. It's moving through those, those books of the Old Testament, moving through Genesis all the way up to Malachi. And then we get to the Gospels. We get to that opening seed, that opening section of the Gospels. And we hear about the seed of the woman. And ground zero is Bethlehem and a baby born of a virgin. There's the seed, the seed of the woman. There's the seed of Abraham. There's the seed of David. There's the one who will crush the head of the serpent. There's the one who will defeat death. There's the one that will reach the nations, right? This is the Gentile mission. And that's come unto the scene. And watch this, what Paul says. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God, who's the savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Again, this is the Gentile mission. 
When Paul is speaking of all men, realize what he's got in the backdrop of his mind. He, he has the idea of the commission of the Lord to the apostles and to the churches to go to the nations and make disciples, Matthew 28. The ministry of word and sacrament, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so this mission that has now been launched with the coming of the Son, the death of the Son, the resurrection, and the ascension of the Son, and commissioning the apostles to go to the nations, Paul now is carrying that out. This is in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 52.10. The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of the Lord. Of Isaiah 52.10. Or again, Luke's version of that great commission message where he says in Luke 24.47, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all the nations, watch this, beginning in Jerusalem, beginning in Jerusalem. And we know from there, it will launch. As, as Christ the Ascended One goes to heaven and He sends the Father and the Son, sends the Spirit to empower the apostles in particular, but, in the, but also the, the church to carry out this mission. And Acts 1.8, but you shall receive you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem. And it just goes out in, in Judea and Samaria and to where? And to the ends of the earth. And to the ends of the earth. And that mission, that Gentile mission, when I say Gentiles, I mean that mission to the nations, to the Gentile nations, it... it it took place, ground zero was, was Jerusalem, there in Bethlehem, there in Israel. It moved outside, it moved among them. The early church is Hebrew, they're Jewish. That's who's in the upper room. It, it spreads among them, and then it goes out to the nations. And Paul says in verse 10 that this is hard work, and there is suffering involved in this hard work and mission to reach the nations. Look at verse 10 again. For to this end, we both labor, and his language here, suffer reproach. Now there are some, Sean has his Greek New Testament with him. I saw it in his hands. There, there is a variant here. The majority text has this idea of suffering reproach. To this end, we labor and suffer reproach. The we, the we that he's speaking of here. This is the apostles, the apostolic band, as we might call them, his colleagues, Peter, Luke, all the colleagues that are involved, James down in Jerusalem, and even men such as Timothy. And the implications would be also for those who labor in ministry. The word that Paul uses for labor means to work to the point of exhaustion. And the second word, suffer reproach, and these two words 
It's two, it's two words underneath this in the in the Greek text. And there again, there's this textual variant here, but the word used by the majority text is the idea of suffering, to be reviled, to insult. Now watch this. We've already been talking about godliness. Now watch this. This work which Timothy and the apostolic band and the church and every good minister of Jesus Christ that is committed and, and, and sets forth this global biblical mission to reach the nations, they are to understand that in, to the end of this, they will both labor and suffer reproach. There is a working to exhaustion and a suffering for this. A suffering. Striving after godliness leads to the faithful. Listen to me. Striving after godliness leads to the faithful, obedient labors of the overall mission that Christ has given his church. And the faithful minister of Jesus Christ is to labor. He's to labor as he obeys and leans into this biblical mission. In other words, the laboring will be costly. You remember McShane? He was dead at 30. All the apostles, except maybe the exception of John, were martyred. Listen to this. Second Timothy, not first Timothy, second Timothy, the second letter. Put your eyes on this. I want you to see this. Second Timothy chapter three. This is what Paul has in mind here. It's not just that you're putting a lot of, that you might be putting a lot of hours in at the office. That may be the case, especially if you're in a peaceful setting. But overall, throughout the history of the church, that's not what takes place. It looks more like this. Now, notice 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning of verse 10. And we have an idea of what Paul means. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach. That is, to fulfill this mission. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning of verse 10. But you, Timothy, but you, Timothy, Timothy, have carefully followed my doctrine, my teaching, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance. Now watch this, verse 11. What's the next word? Persecutions, afflictions, which, ha which happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And if you want to read more about these persecutions of Paul, just read through the New Testament, especially over in 2 uh, Corinthians. He'll list them off in 2 Corinthians. But he said, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Now, now look at verse 12. Yes, yes, 
all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will what? Will suffer persecution. So for, for Paul, carrying out the Gentile mission, being obedient to the biblical mission, to reach the Gospels, to go where the name of Christ has not been made known, to go to those places in the pursuit of obedience and godliness, that is, the pursuit of obedience to the Word of God, this godliness, he labors and suffers reproach. In Galatians 6.17, he says, For I bear in my body the brand marks of the Lord Jesus, which are probably speaking of his beatings. He's scarred. We, we might have in our heads this very American 21st century superficial ideal about godliness. Paul has in his mind laboring and suffering reproach, obedient to the point of death like the sun. Again, our laboring to the point of exhaustion and suffering that will come in efforts to fulfill the mission, they are worth it. They're worth it because verse 10 tells us because the living God is the object of our hope and trust. The apostolic hope rests in the resurrection and the hope and trust of the living God whom they shall see and shall be with. Again, verse 10, 1 Timothy 4, verse 10. Because, for to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Again, a few more remarks. Watch this. Our God is not like the false and dead gods of the pagans. Our God knows and is aware of our labors. And our labors, our kingdom labors, are not in vain. Godliness, laboring, and suffering in the name of Christ has promise of that which is to come. Verse 8. Verse 8. Again, listen, listen to this. This is wonderful. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to Paul. In the 54th verse of 1 Corinthians 15, as he says, death, death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. Then he says in verse 57, or actually verse 55, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? Verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the very next verse, listen to what he says. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You notice how he connects it together? 
All right. Now, we see what he means by this. This labor and suffering for the global mission, the biblical mission. And, and let me say this. Understand this. It is on a week-to-week basis, on a week-to-week basis right here when we gather on the Lord's Day, we are carrying out the work of the Great Commission. We, we are, yes, we are praying for those mission endeavors that we would reach our community. We would reach Northern Virginia. We would reach North America. We're, pr- we're praying for those men that we support abroad. We're giving to that end that those monies and those resources go to support those men, those pastors and missionaries, planting churches, pastoring churches in faraway places. But we ourselves are continuing with as we're going to see in a few weeks, baptizing those in the name of the triune God, teaching all that Christ commanded. It goes here and it launches forth on a week-to-week basis. We're, we're at a time now, as if you're wondering about the difficulties of the things that are surrounding us right now in North America, right now, this are, these are the facts. Churches are closing faster than they are being planted. That's where we that's where we're at. It's time to roll up our shirt sleeves, isn't it? Churches are closing faster than they are being planted. When I say planted, I mean established. Some even planted. Yeah, it means starting a new church. To such a degree that some of the main the main denominations, the evangelical main denominations, I'm not talking about the ones that have already driven off the cliff some that are getting close to it, but they're moving now to not only planting churches, they're doing this thing what they call now adopting churches. That is, we're seeing this cascade of churches beginning to collapse. They're asking healthier, larger churches to adopt a church that is dying rather than going planting a, there's a church over here and that there's been such a horrific effect over the consequences that have taken place the last couple of years. Can you help support a man? Can you help support this body? There's a building there and a small congregation that's on the verge of death. Can you help it? Now, some of us will look at some of those congregations and say they might need to die. But you see the point of where things are getting. Now watch this. Moving from there. So so when I speak of this biblical mission, it's not just far away in Congo. It's not just far away in Saudi Arabia. It is there. But it's, it's, it's in Fauquier County. It's in northern Virginia. It's, it's across North America. Do you see that? It's all around us. Now, verse 10 again. He's talked about laboring and suffering in this mission. In the second part of verse 10, he's speaking now of the message of this global mission. What's the message? We, and we've been, he's been sprinkling it along the way through this book. But here's another example. For then this end, verse 10, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God. Who is the Savior of all men? Especially of those who believe. 
There's the message. Now, somebody actually came up to me last week and said, whoa, look at that. As if this is some Armenian Scud missile. <laughs> Our Patriot barrages are set up, right, Bob? God's Iron Dome is there. Now notice this. The message of the one true and living God who is the Savior of all men, remember this. And, and over in chapter 1, verse 1, he speaks of God as being the Savior of all men. In the very opening verse. But the key is always context, context, context. The surrounding verses, the chapter, the book, the New Testament, moving out to the, the Bible to understand what's being said here. But let's take right here, the immediate context. We back up, we hit verse 16 of chapter 3 that we've seen this global message. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the what? Gentiles, Gentiles or that can be translated nations. There it is. Preached among the Gentiles, preached among the nations, believed on in the world. Now, is Paul saying the whole world believed Christ? Is he teaching universalism of some kind? No. Believed on, believed on in the world, that is, among the nations, right? Among the Gentiles, and then received up in glory. In chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, back up again. Back up one more, another chapter. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. You remember this? We covered this some time ago. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. All men. It's that same kind of language. Verse 2. For kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Verse 3, for this is good. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Verse 4, who desires what? All men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who gave himself what? As a ransom for what? For all. To be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying. A teacher of the what? Gentiles. A teacher that's going to the nations in faith and truth. Now you remember what we've seen here and what we looked at, what Paul's saying here. The gospel, the gospel moves outside of Israel the ethnic Hebrew people, it goes outside there, and it's now going forth as promised by the prophets to the nations. There will be a day when the glory of God will cover the earth as the seas, right? It reaches the nations. So the gospel is going forth to all men, listen to me, without distinction. Jew and what? Gentile. Jew and Gentile, male and female, free and slave, red, yellow, black, and white, to the people in Saudi Arabia, as we said before, to the people in Nigeria, right? To the people in Brazil, right? To the people in China, all people without distinction. Yeah. However, the Bible is very clear that God 
and gospel expansion reaching the nations does not save all men without exception. He reached, the, the, the gospel goes forth to all peoples without exception, without distinction, but it doesn't go to all individuals and they do not get saved. That is all men without exception. The Bible, te- the Bible does not teach universalism. It does not teach universalism. That is, that all will be ultimately saved. It doesn't teach that. No, it speaks of the reality of hell for those that reject the gospel. Men, women, and children must be saved, believingly saved. They must believe the gospel. And that saving faith we heard last Saturday at the Keats Conference. Watch this. We, we, we hear verses like this and we, we struggle with them, but th- these other verses, notice, for instance, very teaching the same thing, the same kind of language that people wrestle with. Look at John chapter 3, verse 14. In John chapter 3, verse 14, very familiar passage with folks. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Verse 15. Notice what it says. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Who doesn't perish? Believers. Who will perish? Unbelievers. Right? Verse 16. Here is universal language. John, a Jew, speaking about this global mission to the nations. For God so loved the world, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What does it say next? That whoever believes in him should not perish. And people here, when you speak of a particular atonement or redemption, they go, oh, John 3, 16, John 3, 16, as if we didn't know that was in the Bible. The verse says that God's global mission to the world is going forth and that whoever believes in him should not perish. The text is teaching Christ died for believers. He died for those who will not perish, those that have everlasting life. Verse 17, for God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God's purposes are not frustrated. He's saving people from all the nations. You go on to verse 36 of John 3, and he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son does not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now, with all this being said, this verse is speaking of the universal scope of the gospel going to all people in all nations. That's what we're, that's what we're seeing here. That is in, in verse, in verse uh, 10 of 1 Timothy. And additionally, we should, think of the, we should think of the general call of the gospel to all people. We, we hear the language of Paul in Acts 17.30, but now God commands all men everywhere to repent. We are to indiscriminately preach the gospel to all men. However, we also know from Scripture that while we labor in this mission, we go to the nations, we share the gospel with the lost, we also know the good news that the Great Commission will be accomplished 
and that Christ's death on the cross was effectual and has redeemed people from all the nations. It will. We find it in the end of the book in Revelation 5, 9. In Revelation 5, 9, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of, here it is, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The atonement of Christ is particular and definite. It will infallibly accomplish God's ordained purpose. Not one of God's elect sheep shall perish, for they have been purchased by the blood of the good shepherd. I agree with Spurgeon when he said, I do not, I do not believe in an atonement which is admirably wide, but fatally ineffectual. End quote. All right. So, what's he saying in verse 10? For to this end we labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who's the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. Verse 11, we're out of time here. Let me wrap it up. Let me jump to verse 11. Here he speaks of Timothy's public teaching ministry. These things command and teach. We're reminded of this positive and negative aspect of the teaching ministry of a good minister, Jesus Christ. Here is his public teaching ministry. Command and teach. That doesn't sound like teaching nowadays, does it? A chit-chat, a talk. He says command and teach from God's word. This falls in line, as we've already seen, with the qualifications of an elder in 1 Timothy 3, 2, that he is to be able to teach. Let me give you some application, and then uh, we'll move to the Lord's table. Again, I want to remind us, and then next week we'll, we'll move right into verse 11 uh, concerning Timothy and these continual marks of a good minister but this morning, as we have observed uh, last week and we continue to observe this week, how these things apply to all ministers of the gospel, not just Timothy or Paul, but to each generation and to the elders of the church, that we are to be laboring in these things, that they, the, the leadership of the church is to set an example as shepherds to the entire flock. And these instructions apply to us as ministers of the gospel and to each and every one of us, every man, woman, and child that claims to know and, and, and love the name of Christ, we are to be growing in the knowledge of the truth of God's word and doctrine as Paul instructs Timothy and as we are instructed. And these things lead to godliness, godliness as we obey the truth. And with that being said, there's nothing more important than the ministry of the word the faithful instruction of the word. Now listen, this topic of godliness that we find not just here, it pops up again and again in Paul's letters and Peter. Godliness. That godliness does not come through the false teaching of those false teachers. The godliness that Paul speaks of is that which does not come through asceticism, 
If you, if you remember uh, verse 3 of chapter 4, you remember verse 3? He begins to imply that it's something to do with their teachings. Look at verse 3 of chapter 4. Forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. It, it, that's the same kind of language that we find over when Paul is writing to the Colossians and confronting the heresy there in Colossians chapter 2, verse 21. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. He's describing the false teachers and their teaching. Verse 22, which all concern things which perish, things which perish with the using according to these commandments and doctrines of men. Verse 23, these things indeed have appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. It's the same thought. They may have value temporarily in this age, but not ultimately in the age to come. And, they, they, and their, their help in this world is very little, but it doesn't lead to true godliness. Peter would say in 2 Peter 1.3 concerning true godliness, true spiritual virtue that comes to the believer by the activity of the Holy Spirit as, as the word of God is applied to our hearts and lives as we, as we willingly embrace God's word and, and obey God's word. Peter would say in 2 Peter 1.3 as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Amen. However, even with that being said, this is not a doctrine of when it comes to our growth in grace and godliness. This is not a let go and let God attitude toward these things. It comes from God. And yet again and again, we'll find in the scriptures, we are to pursue it. We are to labor in it. In fact, an example in this book, we'll eventually get to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. But you, O man of God, flee these things. And then listen to what he says. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. You see, there is in this work of growing grace and sanctification and holiness, there is this work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but realizing it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Amen. It comes as we embrace Christ. Watch this. As we are united to him, we are identified with his life and closely related in our present passage. And you'll find throughout the New Testament a doctrine that is foreign to the modern ear. We are not only identified with his life, but we are united, Paul says, to his sufferings, to his sufferings. Again, 1 Timothy 6.3, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to the wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to teach the doctrine which accords with godliness. He is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which comes envy, strife, reviling, and evil suspicions. And it's this doctrine that again and again, he unites it to this idea of laboring and suffering reproach. We, we, we will probably touch on this again because this needs to be spoken about and understood. But I want you to consider this this morning as we begin to close in on this. True godliness and the gospel. 
have you considered not only the words, start noticing as you read your Bibles and as we hear it taught, our union and our identification with Christ as his people and the language that's found with the ordinances of the sacraments found in the, found in the scriptures. We are buried in the likeness of his what? Death. Death. Risen to what? Walk in newness of life. We come to the, we come to the table and we're eating his flesh and drinking his blood, right? This all speaks of his death and sufferings. And so there's a, there's a real sense in where the people of God, as we are growing in the grace and holiness and godliness and Christ-likeness, we are not only identified with his life, but also with his sufferings. And we should see that and understand that. <laughs> you see how false so many gospels swirling around us are? The new you... Name it and claim it, health and wealth. And yet we find a gospel here. Yes. Yes. We're identified with the suffering servant as his people. We're identified with him in suffering and in life. Yes, our sins are forgiven and washed away, and we are justified and declared not guilty because of Christ's death. But the scriptures, again, teach that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, clothed in the Son, as it's witnessed in the waters of baptism. Our faith and trust and rest ultimately is not in our laboring or doing, though we are to labor and do because of the result of the gospel in our lives. But our faith rests in the work of the Son, in Him alone. His righteous merits. He is the Savior, the triune God of all men. And as it says here, especially of those who believe. This morning as we come to the table, let us be reminded of this kind and gracious gift that God has given to us in the gospel. Not by works of righteousness that we have earned, that by the work of Christ, by faith, we come to him with empty hands and we receive this gracious gift of the gospel that's seen and made evident in the sign and symbol of the table. Let us pray.